Welcome to the episode of Cine Nation. My name is Brandon Sparks. And I'm Thomas Horton. And here on Cine Nation, we discuss film genres and the tropes and stories within them. And last month, we had our summer month. The summer, summer is now over. We're, in, we're into fall and we're getting into autumn. And uh, we're now going to be covering a new mo- our new genre for this month. And that is the courtroom drama. When I think September, I think courtroom dramas, Thomas. <laughs> That's what I think of. But Everyone, Everyone's got to pay for their crimes they committed in the summer. <laughs> in, in the summer, that's what it is. The verdict is in, guys. Um, so, yeah, we're talking about the courtroom drama uh, genre. And we discussed this way back in the day in, in kind of our our middle phase of the Cine Asian podcast, I think is mm-hmm. what, what I'm calling it, where we, did a, we tried to tackle the entire genre in one episode. Those were the days, Thomas, when we tried to <laughs> tackle a decades-long genre in one episode but let's talk about now let's break down this genre a little bit before we dive into this month before we dive into our episode today but what do you think of when you think of the courtroom drama would be be movies or tropes or just things of that nature with this genre think of think of monologues think of big speeches (laughs) you know the the whole idea of like a courtroom proceeding has you know closing state opening statements closing statements all kind of built into it so it's like okay there we go there's our there's our monologue your character <laughs> your your attorney character is going to get to monologue no matter what you're going to have mm-hmm. a good kind of cross-examination scene you always got to have a good cross-examination scene yeah um i think of think of a few good men i think yeah. of i think of some kind of old familiar character actor playing the judge you know <laughs> Yeah, usually, mm-hmm. like Dan- Danny Glover and the and the Rainmaker, I think is one I that isn't comes it, to uh, mind. Isn't it Herman Munster and Runaway Jury? Yeah, no, no, no. My cousin Vinny. My, my cousin, cousin Vinny. Vinny. Yeah, my cousin yeah. Vinny. Run- Whoever's who the it? judge in Runaway Jury is somebody else too. I feel like one of them was like actually no, I think it's Liar Liar that was like actually a judge that became an actor that was the <laughs> the judge. Um, who? Oh, Bruce McGill. Oh yeah, the G Day from ju- Animal House. D Day from Animal House is, yeah. is the one run right jury. Yeah, I forgot about that. Um, yeah, it's yeah, that's a fa- that's a fair point. Um, I also think with the with the with the courtroom drama, there's also kind of like misconceptions about the courtroom within a courtroom drama. You know what I mean? Like we mm-hmm. kind we kind of develop ideas of like there's always going to be that big like reveal in the in the uh when they're being cross-examined or whatever during the trial if it's if it's jack nicholson revealing things about the uh who who ordered the code red or whatever um you have these kind of big reveals when in in actuality it's not that way i think that's one thing these past i mean really since the 90s with uh uh with oj it's like you've seen because of court the rise of court tv and kind of kind of this where like you see how kind of mundane court like mm-hmm. trials can be that was the big thing about the the depth like amber heard trial recently where everyone's like this is not how car- trials supposed to be this is not they're not usually this sensationalized a lot of the time it's more like mundane and like really very like legal like really mm-hmm. very legal centric um and yeah, and the, the courtroom drama has been an interesting one because there was big section, big periods of this drama that were, it was really popular. The rise of John Grisham, the mm. big one where it was kind of the rise of the legal thriller. And this is a genre that has kind of been dormant. You kind of see a few things here and there. Like you had Just Mercy a few years ago. Yeah. 
um, the judge. It's like I, I'm I'm not always sure like why it it kind of moved to TV, I guess, like with yeah, the rise yeah, of Law you know, and Order, the, the the rise of Law and Order, like you yeah. the OJ Show, yes, um, Boston Legal. You know that yeah. was that was big for a while, but yeah, yeah, it, it's definitely something that is kind of set up more for a tv show because it's like we have this case it's it's yeah. i mean it's perfect for a procedural um yeah you know this case has landed on our on our desk we're gonna have to try it and we're gonna have to wrap it up by by the end of the show yeah i love it like usually with those type cases like you don't know how long those cases take it's but it's like it's an hour it's a 45 minute show or whatever mm-hmm. and you're like people who are on like law cases like it could be months or yeah, like, especially like, especially like og law and order when they were like yeah. we're going to investigate this and prosecute it all in one episode <laughs> One episode, you're like that doesn't really make that much sense uh, logically um but yeah it's like you had the kind of rise of tv because i think it was really in the 20 the, kind of the late 2000s the 2010s where like the courtroom drama kind of went out of style yeah i mean we um, were we were still getting john grisham adaptations into the the mid 2000s yes well because like i think remember my jury's oh three and i can't remember if that's the last one or not and and i know people i will say from from experience is that i know studios and production companies still look at things like john grisham novels like mm-hmm. of like a possible ip and you still have like the TV show, like you have the Firm come out. You had the Lincoln Lawyer come out recently on on yeah, Netflix. I was about to say we can't we can't forget the Lincoln Lawyer was a cornerstone in the in the McConaissance. It was. I think it's it's very key. It's it's before like it's it's kind of the one everyone forgets about. It's also just a. It's I think it's a really good movie for yeah, one. It's a it's a solid legal thriller. And the cast is great. Like mm-hmm. that cast is like Marissa Tomei, uh, Michael Pena dropping in for just like two scenes, but like yeah. really bringing it for for those two scenes and two very different scenes. Like one <laughs> where he's like the innocent, like oh I didn't do it, and the second one's like yo I've been like a hard I've become like a hardened man here in jail. Mm-hmm. But Brian Cranston's in it, like William H Macy, really really great cast in in that one. Um, but yeah, it's like it it is a good showpiece for actors. If it's even something like Aaron Brockovich for Julia Roberts, or if it's McConaughey and Lincoln Lawyer, Time to Kill, Amistad, whatever else, Bernie, even like he, it, it's it is a good show. We even talked about kind of a few mo- or two months ago on our Kubrick episode with uh, Kirk Douglas and Pads of Glory. Like it's mm-hmm. a really good showpiece for an actor. Or I mean, the big one is is Gregory Peck and To Kill a Mockingbird. Um, but yeah, you have a lot of these kind of tropes that pop up in this genre. Um, you have the, st- the kind of section or the uh, the important aspects, like a, like a closing argument or whatever. But you have the things of like the older judge or the kind of small town attorney or something like that, or the the slick New York attorney, maybe ambulance chaser. Mm-hmm. You have these kind of character archetypes that will pop up through the genre. And the funny thing is, we're saying all that. And today's movie kind of deals with almost none of those things. And it's also not in a courtroom. <laughs> it's not in a courtroom. But it's but it was so interesting about this movie, as we're talking about 12 Angry Men, directed by Saint Lamette uh, today from 1957. It's not in a courtroom, but when you look at the way they build out this story in the jury room, it's almost like you're getting the case in the jury room. It's like they're giving you exposition and you kind of have someone like Fonda as jury eight that's basically playing the the role of the the, the defense attorney mm. and everyone else is the prosecutor. 
And yeah. that first 30 minutes is literally you're just you're kind of getting the case through their eyes and they're laying out the evidence, laying out the key the key pieces of evidence, and you're seeing those things kind of unravel as the movie goes on. Um so yeah, so that leads us into we're talking today about 12 Angry Men, as I said. And 12 Angry Men was directed by Saint Lamette, uh, produced uh, by Henry Fonda and Reginald Ross, and it was written by Reginald Ross. And it stars Henry Fonda, Lee J. Cobb, Ed Bigley, Jack Warden, a lot of great character actors of the period. Martin Balsam. Martin Balsam, of course. Uh, Jack Warden. I don't know if I said Jack Warden. Uh, and Jack Klugman. Uh, and it's about essentially these 12 men who are on in a jury for they're this. Angry. They're angry. Uh, these 12 men who are, who, are, who are part of this jury for this murder case of a young man who is accused of murdering his father in their apartment uh, late one night. And they are trying to determine if he is innocent or guilty. And the first vote comes out and essentially it's 11 to one and Henry Fonda's juror eight is the only one that has a reasonable doubt that this, that this is not, this kid is not, is not guilty. Mm-hmm. Um, so very big film. It's, it's not in a courtroom, but it's essentially considered one of the greatest of this genre because of how they, they tackle the legal aspects of the film. So Thomas, what is your history with this movie? Um, I feel like we, read this was one of the earlier plays that we read in like uh-huh. like maybe ninth grade english mm-hmm. eighth grade english i don't know we, we read it early in, in english class because it's one it's got a lot of parts you can divide it up in the class and then you yeah. just kind of read it and it's and it's a good intro to like reading a play you know yeah, um, that's true and even if you want to kind of stage it in the classroom it's it's not a lot of yeah. movement going on and so, so it was one that we read sometime in English class, and then you know the then the teacher let us watch the movie, mm-hmm. and and it's and it's one I I do kind of always associate in my mind with like high school English, but every time I do come back mm-hmm. to it, I'm like, all right, I'm not going to be as you know engrossed in it this time, but it 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 gets oh, me every man. time. <laughs> it gets me. Oh gosh, I was I was watching it this time. And I realized that I wasn't writing anything down of like things I want to talk about. I was like, oh, I'm completely engrossed in this movie. And also play it's one big it's one big scene, basically, yeah. is what it is. And so you really just are watching and you're you're mesmerized by the visual style, you're mesmerized by the writing, you're mesmerized by the performances. It, it's just a really not tip my hand too, but it's pretty much top to bottom this really great film mm-hmm. and it's one that like you said it's it's like you think like oh yeah it was good or whatever the first time you see it and then every time you kind of come back to it you realize how great of a film it actually is and I, yeah i saw this probably in high school it was probably one of those early ones where you see it's a good introduction to to kind of, i think it's a good introduction to classic film i yeah. would say and it's, it's, it's also as as far as just like a piece of literature goes, it's a yeah. good way to break down characterization because almost yes. pretty much everyone has like one sentence that is like yeah. their character, and that's all you really need to know about them in yeah. this in this situation. And, and so it is a good way to kind of read it with students and then be like, what defines this person? What defines this person? Yeah, and and all the characters too are still like weirdly relevant in some way. Like they're yeah. all yeah. like, <laughs> it's like. Juror number one's a football coach. Uh, juror number two 
is oh, which one? Oh, I, I don't know. What, I don't know what Piglet he's is. He's a banker. He's a banker. So he's yeah. a banker. Juror number three is is he a, is is juror number three a salesman? Is what it is? or what? Because because they're like there's a mixture of like class system in there where it's yeah, like I don't, I don't remember if three says yeah what he does because I I know like juror number six is like a construction worker basically because mm-hmm. he talk because he talks about that and well I'm I'm not I'm not much supposing that's that's more like from my bosses or whatever. Um, and I think seven f- seven's a salesman. Seven, you're right, seven's a salesman. He talks about the soft sell mm-hmm. to find. It. He's like, oh boy, uh, you're in the soft sell or whatever. Um, and then four I mean, I is. I think like, we all know what twelve does. Twelve. To, oh yeah. <laughs> let's uh put on the let's, let's wrap the flagpole and see it see if it see if it flies or whatever he says. And my love about, salutes it. Yes, yeah, he salutes it. Yeah. What I love is like his he 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 makes fun of his people saying like his his coworkers saying those phrases. Like beforehand and then he continuously does them and what i love is that i think he's he's aware he's doing them mm-hmm. when he said because there's one part where he says it and kind of smiles to himself he's like, like let's put it out on the stoop and see if the cat licks it up and, yeah. and one <laughs> is like what? Is like what what are you talking about um but yeah it's it's like it's there's good to find characters and, and and archetypes it's like it's like ed bickley's a racist like that's kind of that like that's that's the thing you know about him is that he's just kind of a racist man um and and then you have like the old man with juror number nine like you have they're very or the immigrant with with juror number 11 they're all very distinct that could be played very general but all the actors and their writing are very specific to mm-hmm. each of these characters is kind of the key thing and so yeah i've 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 seen this movie a few times over the years, and it's it's my appreciation for it grows over time, and we'll get into this more later. But I think actually this movie grows it grows in popularity every few years, hmm. and we'll talk more about that because I have kind of data to back that up. But I think it's a good, like I said, it's a good entry point. I think in the classic film is kind of yeah. the key, the key thing I, I want to want to get to with this. Yeah. And um, it's, and it's one you and I debated, including in our, you know, single location. We month, did a couple of few we months did. back because it is from a technical standpoint, it is a masterful Phenomenal. use of, of one single space and yes. blocking. Like we talked about um, yeah. camera movement, where you're putting the actors, where, how the actors are moving while they're talking. Yeah. All of that is just on yeah. display here. No, not that, Sydney Lumet needs any hyping up, but you know, no. yeah, no. Lumet, Lumet is one, and he's also too. When talking about Twelve Angry Men, he's also someone who's tackled the courtroom drama several times. Like if we did a director episode uh, with these these this genre, it's a little harder doing director episodes like we used to because some of these directors we love have like twenty movies or more. And it's hard to cover in one episode, but Lamette's one of those guys where he's done the verdict with Paul Newman. He did a really underrated courtroom drama with Andy Garcia called Night Falls on Manhattan that was that was particularly good. And he's tackled this genre a lot, but yet he still always kind of brings something new to it. Did you ever see that one he did with Vin Diesel? Was it was it any? Good? Oh, the Guilty. No, I never <laughs> saw the Guilty. So yeah, he's done the Guilty. I've heard I've heard decent things. That's one again. Lamette's one I would always love to like dive more into because he's made so many films across so many different genres. If it's the courtroom genre, genre. If it's Dog Day Afternoon. If it's Network. If it's Serpico. If it's The Wiz, for God's sakes. <laughs> like 
he's made on letterbox he's listed as like 53 move 53 titles and i would probably say i would i would say at least 30 30 of those are actual like movie movies and maybe some tv stuff but like he's done he did find me guilty is the one with vin mm. diesel mm-hmm. 3.3 3 on on a letterbox so well it's one I need to watch but yeah it's like he has so many great films that are worth discovering and he starts off with 12 angry men as his debut and it's just like i'll say it now i think outside of maybe citizen kane and you could even argue this morse a little bit it's probably the greatest american debut by any filmmaker ever in my opinion yeah it's definitely up there it's up there i just i think it's and we'll dive more into it but it's pretty much this mass this big statement from a director who takes a really challenging story a really challenging script of the one location which at this point could feel stagey and static and he somehow makes it cinematic Mm -hmm. is the big thing but yeah we'll discuss more as we get into it so let's dive into the history of how this movie came to be the production of it so we have to rewind the clocks to the early days of television And at the end of the 1940s, the popularity of television was on the rise, and soon America would be going through its first television boom, or the first golden age of television. At at this point, studios began looking at popular radio shows in hopes of adapting them for television, because no matter what decade it is, IP is still king in the entertainment industry. Uh, One of the most famous shows of the era was I Love Lucy, which was based on a radio show, I believe called Mm -hmm. My Favorite Husband. Another one of those television shows that transitioned from radio to television was Studio One, an hour-long anthology drama that put on a new program each week. Some of these programs were adaptations of books, examples like the adaptations of George Orwell's 1984 or Nathaniel Hawthorne's The Scarlet Letter, while others were original content. The show was seen as a way to bring like theater-like programs into the homes of America, and it was on the CBS network. I think people saw drama long like these kind of longer form dramas as a big uh cash cow for networks Mm -hmm. with 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 audiences studio one would run for 10 seasons putting out a total of 467 episodes and studio one wasn't the only show of this nature on television there are several playhouse like shows and they were seen as launch pad a launch pad for talented writers writers like Patty Chayefsky, who wrote Marty, which was actually based on a, which was a TV movie, one hour TV show as well, um, or episode for one of these playhouse-like things. Patty Chayefsky also wrote Network. And then you had someone like Rod Serling, who created The Twilight Zone. Uh, he was a writer in, these kind of, in this format before going on to The Twilight Zone. And The Twilight Zone essentially becoming that type of format as well as an hour-long but horror story or mystery story of some kind. For Studio One, one of their most talented writers was Reginald Ross. And Ross was a writer who was from New York, New York, who served in the U.S. Army during World War II. In 1950, Studio One bought Ross's first teleplay called Bust to Nowhere, and they would put on a live version of it in 1951. And at this point, all these programs were done live because they were they were great. There weren't really great ways of doing a taped version across different time periods in the country at this point. Ross's big hit and some considered his masterpiece for Studio One would come in 1954 when they produced a live version of his teleplay, 12 Angry Men. It would serve as the first episode of the program's seventh season. 
Ross said he was inspired to write the story after serving on a jury in New York for a manslaughter case. He said that during the case, the jury got into a furious eight-hour argument deciding the verdict of the case. And he thought, this would be a great idea for a story or for a teleplay, uh, the stuff I'm working on. And also, to put into context, again, around kind of the rise of, I guess, trials in America at specific points in, in, in the, the country's history, the McCarthy trials in the House of Un-American Activities Committee were pretty much in full swing right mm-hmm. before this and around this time. So this so courtroom was a hot topic in America. The television version of 12 Angry Men was a huge hit, winning three Emmy Awards for Best Directing, Best Actor for the show's lead, leading actor, Robert Cummings, and Reginald Ross won, would win an Emmy for Best Writing. Some historians actually believe that the success of this episode forced the Emmys to break up the categories for their awards because it was just like best TV program, best TV directing, mm-hmm. and they broke it out into more like, I guess, miniseries or things of that nature. The show's original director was actually Franklin J. Schaffner, who would later win an Oscar for directing Patton, starring okay. George, George C. Scott. And he yeah. has, I've seen, kind because of, on the Criterion, there's, a, there's the, the TV versions on there. He has some pretty like advanced shots in a live TV production of a, of a, of a thing of this nature. Um, and Patton of course would start George C. Scott, who funny enough would play juror number three in the TV remake of 12 angry men in 1997. So there you go. Ross would then adapt 12 angry men for the stage in 1955, where it premiered in San Francisco. And it seems it didn't receive fantastic reviews from the local critics uh, with Teresa Lowe's Cone, a theater critic critic of the Oakland Tribune, stating stating that the idea for the play had merit, but that the transition from the screen to stage was not wholly satisfactory. She did say the production's director did a decent job of making the show not feel static through its blocking. She also (laughs) notes in the review that an adaptation of the story was moving to the big screen soon with famed actor Henry Fonda producing. God, I and feel that, like that's a, the least you can say in a theater review. It's like, well, the actors moved, you know? Yeah, the actors did a good job moving. Um, yeah, she she was like, it's good. There's a good. There's like nuggets here, and the performances are good. But like, it doesn't. It's not a great play. Basically, is kind of what she says. Mm-hmm. And speaking of Henry Fonda, let's talk about him. So Fonda is in an interesting point in his career. He had recently started a major comeback in 1955. Because Fonda had not acted in a movie in almost eight years before then. Really? He had, yeah, he had starred in, I think, Fort Apache in 1948. He would not star in another film until 1955 with Mr. Roberts, uh, a, hit, a, a hit adaptation of a play that he originated on Broadway and won a Tony for his performance. Have you seen Mr. Roberts, the movie? I have not. It's, so it's, it's a, it's, I watched it in high school, so it's directed by John Ford. The cast is stacked. It's Henry Fonda, William Powell, Jack Lemon, and James Cagney. Wow! It's a, it's okay. they're, they're basically they're, they're in the U.S. Navy. It's a it's a U.S. Navy comedy, and they're all like a submarine, basically. I think is what it is, or or a ship. And uh, Lemon actually won an Oscar for the movie for best supporting actor, as uh, I believe uh, Pulver was the character's name. They did a sequel to it, I think, with a different actor. But yeah, it'd be it would be the first. I think if his two Oscars that Lemon won would be for that one. Um, but yeah, so Fonda had basically been focused on 
theater and Broadway shows. He had basically did Mr. Roberts. He did the national tour for Mr. Roberts and a few other things. So he had turned down pretty much any movies that came his way, specifically he turned in a major contract at the end of the 1940s to only do plays. And when he returned to film acting with Mr. Roberts, it would be a success, but it also was a troubled production because it was directed by John Ford. And reportedly, Ford got into a fist fight with Fonda over some disagreement. And really? Fonda Fonda vowed never to work with him again. Apparently, he was still like very like nice about like what he comments he made about Ford later on in like documentaries and stuff, but he was like, I'll never work with him again, never did. So after finally coming back to the big screen with Mr. Roberts, Fonda was in full force. He starred in the adaptation of War and Peace with Audrey Hepburn, and he also starred in Alfred Hitchcock's The Wrong Man. But at the beginning of this comeback, it was United Artists who contacted him about producing and starring in 12 Angry Men because they had obtained the rights to the play or the, the story. Fonda agreed to do the project, and the film would become the first project that Fonda served as a producer on and he would create his production company with Reginald Ross, who he was good, who he was good friends with, the writer. Uh, and the company was called Orion Nova, is what it was. And with this, Fonda and Ross began looking for a director to tackle the contained drama. And they sailed upon a young director by the name of Sidney Lumet. And like Ross and Fonda, uh, Lumet also served in the military during World War II. And after the war, Lumet had aspirations of becoming an actor. And he would join the actor studio, the famed actor studio in New York, mm -hmm. becoming part of their the school's first group of actors to take part in the program. But, uh, you know, uh, good old Lamette would get tossed out of the actor studio uh, after arguing with one of the professors about what they were teaching the class. Hmm. So he's like, he said him and like 13 other students got thrown out of the actor studio. He's like, okay, screw it. I'll go start my own theater company. So he starts some theater company and they start doing courses and classes and he realizes that no one really knows how to direct scenes. So he starts directing the scenes and then he starts directing productions at this point. And soon after that, Lumet would then transition to television because executives were looking for directors who could direct quickly, who could direct actors and could be on time and on budget. And they went to Lumet to direct essentially these TV shows and Lamette became known as one of the most gifted directors of the early days of television. He worked with studio one and directed several of their shows, but also he did other anthology dramas at the time as well. He directed a total or he directed around 200 episodes of television. Wow. And like a five to six year period. He apparently at one point was directing two different shows at one point. No way. He was <laughs> He was talking about it on the Criterion thing. He was talking about how he would do he would do one show on Tuesday and one show on Sunday. And he says essentially when you're doing a show, you have four you have four shows in your head for each show, so you have eight different episodes in your head at one time. He's like because yeah. he's like he's like you're getting the script for the the show that's in four weeks. You're doing the sets for the show that's in three weeks. You're casting the actors for the show that's in week two in two weeks and you're you're shooting and working on and, and rehearsing the show that's that week mm -hmm. and he's like so i'm doing that for two different shows <laughs> and he's like so after that every, he has movies were easy yeah exactly <laughs> movies were a breeze 
He said, yeah. So he, but he became known as one of the most efficient directors. And they also commented on how his movies, or I'm sorry, how his episodes of TV felt like many films because of their high quality. And one of the anthology shows, or one of the shows that he worked on was called Danger. And one of the show's lead writers was Reginald Ross. And because this production of 12 Angry Men was to be done on a tight schedule and a tight budget, Fonda and Ross wanted someone who could be efficient and do that. And so they went to Lamette. Uh, Ross knew him for the show. Fonda, funny enough, had seen a production that Lamette had done or like a showcase Lamette had done because mm-hmm. one of Lamette's acting friends that's in, was in his company was a friend of Fonda and invited Fonda to the show. So Fonda was totally down with Lamette being the director on this production and Lamette would soon agree, officially transitioning from television to film. And when casting for the film, Fonda agreed to be the lead, as, as I said, and they would actually pull two actors who were in the original TV version of the tele, of, of, 12 Angry, of 12 Angry Men. Joseph Sweeney, who was juror number nine, the old man, mm-hmm. and George Voskovic, who was juror number 11, the, the immigrant character. Okay, yeah. So those two were in both both versions. Lamette would soon round the cast with several character actors from TV and film, like I said earlier. Lee J. Cobb, Ed Bigley, Jack Warden, Martin Balsam, Jack Klugman, and the list goes on. Um, and so, yeah, I have more that deals with the rehearsal process, but like our Everybody Wants Some episode, I'm going to save that for Onset Life. So <laughs> let's dive into favorite scenes for this movie. So Thomas, what's your what's your favorite scene? And you can't say the whole movie. I really like when they go into the jury room and then they debate the the verdict of of the yeah. I think that's a great scene. <laughs> but speaking of going you know, in the jury room, I love the intro to all the characters. Oh yeah, like he had he has this. I think I think it's a oneer. This great kind of one shot when they come into the room where it's like the camera's up high and kind of follows them around. But you get a sense of who all these characters are mm. pretty early in the film, and it works. It works well. Yeah. But what? But what's the scene that you have? Um, I, I think of I think of kind of the scene breaks as like when eight wins people over to his side. Yeah, like those yeah. are each kind of separate little segments, and yeah. and so, um, I I really like when nine kind of yeah. starts to stand up for himself a little bit mm-hmm. because. And, and you know he's got that he's 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 the one who brings in there like you know the old man why the old man test the old man's testimony can't be wrong why would the old man lie yeah and then he has this kind of monologue about what it's like to be old and to be cast yeah. aside and to just be desperate for someone to listen to you and it's and it's very well delivered and you know it's mm-hmm. this it's this thing where he's he's in the same position now and he didn't yeah. think he would you know he, yeah. he kind of came in expecting to just vote and then nobody would listen to him and then it's really kind of his his courage that that, that turns it because ev- everyone is set against eight up until he he backs him up and basically he says because eight eight basically poses in the question he's like look let's do it let's do a secret ballot if everyone votes guilty i'll change my vote and we'll end this thing right now and so there's tension in that moment of like we don't think anyone's been convinced that he's the guy's innocent and it's that moment where Balsam does it phenomenally. When Balsam like is opening up the like the papers, guilty, guilty, and Lamette staged it great, where like he sees the innocent or what or mm-hmm. not guilty, and Balsam just like stands up and is like not guilty. 
and then <laughs> and then it becomes that free for all of like who said not guilty yeah um and like Cobb is blaming Klugman because oh you you're like you're uh you're just a sap you basically you you're bleeding heart laying this kid and mm-hmm. Klugman likes like, I didn't do this and that's in the old man Joseph Sweeney and yeah he has this great moment where like he's like saying like I um I changed it because I don't think I don't know if he's guilty or not I don't know if he's guilty or not but like this man basically asked just basically asked for help and i'm giving it to him let's hear what he has to say and yeah and that comes into that old the old man section where like you're seeing how he's breaking down this man's train of thought of like Mm -hmm. he just wants to be heard and so and that happens with a lot of stuff with like you you just want to have a voice Mm -hmm. and as you're saying too he now has this voice in this room all of a sudden when he's kind of this timid old man early on yeah, yeah, and, and and you see that you know you see that happen. That that is kind of the pattern of the the story unfolding here is is the, you know the the people who do kind of come over to eight side, were the ones who were a little bit more timid. You know you've yeah. got um, um, five. You know is is really biting his tongue through a lot of it until he's finally yeah. like I I grew up in the projects. Like yeah. don't don't be. That's true. Slamming everyone from the projects, and then and, it, and you've got the same thing with um, Jury number two, with with, with two, with, yeah, absolutely, yeah, does, and yeah. and uh, uh, eleven as well. Um, yeah. you know, eleven is 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 I, I love eleven. It's such a great character, and to, to you know just the having him correct people's grammar throughout and and all that kind of stuff is yeah. really fun. But yeah, he's he's another one that would probably wouldn't have spoken if Mm-mm. eight hadn't spoken up originally. Yeah. Because what ends up happening is that the ones who are the loudest are the ones who are left on the other side. Yeah, and and, uh, and you know as it, as it turns out, when you kind of knowing that's how the, the story is going to unfold, when you go back and watch it again, that that's you know they're the ones that are like, well, should we just this kid's guilty, so let's go ahead and call for the vote right now? And then yeah. somebody was like, well, let's do it secret ballot, and they're like, why well, do it secret ballot? We all know he's guilty. You know, they're they're just yeah. dominating the room and dominating the conversation. Yeah. And, 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 and again, all great, but yeah, it's like you, it's a point where like it gets to like, I think eight to four and that's when like, I think it's just, it's your number four, three, 10 and seven that are left. Mm-hmm. And speaking of great scenes, I love the scene when juror 11 basically at, like verbally, like ba- or basically it's an argument with seven because seven's like, I'm changing my vote. Yeah. yeah. And he's like, just because because he, basically he sees they're losing and mm-hmm. he just wants to get it over with and like 11's like no 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 you either that's vote worse. Yeah, yeah it's worse that's worse that you're doing because you don't care we're doing something very important here you either vote how you feel or you shouldn't be here basically and it's a really revealing moment and and i wondered do you think seven is like he says oh i think he's innocent now do you think seven actually believed he's innocent or no. was he it was peer pressured yeah which he mean, wasn't he just, pressured. He just wanted, seven just wanted to get out of there, but seven. Yeah, I don't. I don't think seven was ever going to take the You know, short of having a moment where seven like breaks down into tears. I don't think seven. As much as we know about how glib seven is, I don't think he was ever going to kind of grasp the gravity of the situation that he's in. And no. and, and maybe yes, maybe yes. That kind of lecture from eleven does make him pause a moment and go. Oh, you know, everyone else is taking this seriously, but I, I don't think in this story he ever goes like a, a, a guy's life is on the line. 
you know. You have sat here and voted guilty with everyone else because there are some baseball tickets burning a hole in your pocket. And now you have changed your vote because you say you're sick of all the talking here? Now, listen, buddy. Who tells you that you have the right to play like this with a man's life? Don't you care? Now, wait a minute. You can't talk like that to me. I can talk like that to you. If you want to vote not guilty, then do it because you are convinced the man is not guilty and not because you've had enough. And if you think he is guilty, then vote that way. Or don't you have the guts to do what you think is right? Now, listen. Guilty or not guilty? I told you. Not guilty. Why? Look, I don't have to... You do have to. Say it. Why? I don't uh, think he's guilty. And speaking of Jack, I love Jack Warden in this movie, by the way. I, I, he's he's fantastic. He's fun. Like mm. Jack Warden, I love so much in pretty much anything he's in. If it's this, if it's the verdict, also with St. Lamette, if it's Problem Child as, as, <laughs> as the grandfather, Jack Warden's amazing. Amazing in this, or amazing in everything. Um, yeah, and again, just the dynamic between Leach, Cobb, and Fonda is just yes. wonderful. Wonderful, like it, it's just a perfect like balance of these two people. Where Cobb is this hot-tempered, loud, bolsterous kind of individual, and Fonda's this not meek. He, I think, he's very tough. He's just a very quiet man. Is mm-hmm. what it is. He he. Cobb's character, number three, is basing everything off emotion, mm-hmm. in a way. But but fond. But but Cobb's care. But but number three doesn't have compassion, and I think eight is someone who bases things off of fact, but has compassion. Uh, it's an interesting kind of dynamic where like. He's not, Fonda's not, or Fonda's not the emotional one, but he has compassion. When Cobb is emotional but lacks compassion, is the thing. There's a bias there with his character, mm-hmm. um, and and that's why I love with Ross's script that he does. It's like with with Cobb's character, which number three, like the core of it is like it's the son, it's the father son angle that he's do that they're they're they keep pointing at the entire right. time. Is it like? he sees this kid as his son and he mm-hmm. sees the dead father as himself. And yeah. he's, it's almost like a revenge story in his eyes. Yeah. Yeah. Every, everyone has their own biases that they're bringing in to this room. Yeah. And and so much of this is about breaking those down, whether it's racial or, or um, economic or, yeah. or, and, and, and his is like, like kids like like yeah like teen boys yeah specifically yeah. uh because of his his experience with his own son because he has a great he has a great line now is just like oh this sounds like a like like older people nowadays where they're like back in my day like i i always referenced my father as sir like yeah. he, I could, oh he's got that line where he's like i i i saw my son run away from a fight once and it made me sick yeah <laughs> it's just like okay yeah no we know exactly <laughs> who you are now yeah but like it's interesting to see how like how these type of attitudes and and perspectives are still so relevant today. Mm-hmm. Like Juror Ten's big speech, you could hear today. Like mm-hmm. is the thing, and I probably have heard today. Well, that's what I think. Juror Ten is a very interesting character. You know, that's that's the thing is 
when I say like everyone's character can be boiled down to a sentence, that's, that is not to say that they're, you know, simple not, in any way. Yes, correct. And, yes. and you could just make 10 a racist. Yeah. You could just make 10 a racist. Um, but he's, he's not, well, he is, he's racist, but he, he's, he's you, ignorant. You're seeing, what's that? He's, he's ignorant. Yes. You're seeing ignorance without, without hate, you know, yeah. uh, three has so much hate. Yeah. And 10 is, 10 is ignorance, but, but you, you see that when it, when it finally gets to him, when everybody mm-hmm. like moves away and he finally goes and like sits with his thoughts for a little bit. And then you, and then you do, you, you know, un, unlike, uh, seven, you do see some regret when he's, when he, when he says innocent, you know, yeah. you see that he's, he's gone over in the corner and sat with himself and, and, and realized a few things. And, and yeah, I yeah. do, I think especially these days with the way, especially older people but young people as well <laughs> um can be led down you know what they call these these pipelines on the mm-hmm. internet where it's like you just get deeper and deeper into these communities that make you think this way make you think this way and you can get completely convinced of something that you don't even realize is hateful yeah until you interact with someone who's who's not involved in that community and they're like hey that's you know that's that line of thinking is really hateful and, and yeah. I, i've had that that interaction yeah. with some people where they're like well what's wrong with with doing this and I'm like, well, it makes these people feel really bad. And they're yeah. like, I, I had no idea, you know? And, and, I've and, had, so, and I've had conversations that have gone the opposite way where we're like, well, screw it. I No one's going to tell me how to feel or mm-hmm. say things. But like, yeah. it, it, it's that moment. Well, like, that, that's that's the difference of between ignorance with hate and ignorance without hate. But, um, but yeah, when he when he goes off on that rant and everyone just moves just away. Just turns around. Yeah. yeah and every Everyone. I mean, even three. Yeah. It's like. Yeah. I can't I can't align myself with this guy in any way. Yeah. And then, and, and and then, then he just has this moment where he's like, oh, I, yeah. Well, and four and four goes like basically sit down, shut up or basically sit down and don't say another word. Mm-hmm. It's kind of what he tells him like y- your voice is now no longer good here. Basically, mm-hmm. it's kind of what it comes off as because they now know that he's speaking from a place of ignorance and mm-hmm. he's it seems like he's not willing to conform um but yeah, everyone has has these great moments and like again you see i i love juror six because juror six is that is like the house painter or constructor where like he turns from being the guy like to to find being like he's guilty man like it's like mm-hmm. and he does that he is supposed he is supposing we you convince us all he's innocent and then he actually did kill his old man and like but then what i love about his character too where he ends up standing up to bullies Mm-hmm. Six is a guy who can tell like someone in his life or maybe himself was bullied at a certain age. And anytime someone's being picked on that is somewhat weaker or seen as mm-hmm. weaker in some way, he basically goes to that person. Like, Look, say another word to them like that. And like, yeah. we're going to, we're going to end this right here. Yeah. He's, he's, he's like, I, I don't have a lot to offer to this room. Uh, yeah. A lot of people here are probably smarter than he thinks yeah. he is but he knows that, that he's tougher than most of the guys in that room. Yeah. And I'll use that. Like, it's like when, when they like, when the, I can't remember who, when they're yelling at the old man or if it's yelling at the immigrant or whoever, like, or even like two, like he's very much like, look, if we're going to, we're going to be civil here, we can disagree, but don't like, don't think you can just bully someone into your opinion. Um, yeah. I mean, you can honestly go down the line of like every character here has, has a wonderful 
moment if it's juror number 12 with all his random sayings that he does um and you like that today is like a that's probably like a, a stock as like a, or like a, a bitcoin guy or whatever i don't know um or still he's social media he's an influencer that'd be would that be the influencer character nowadays i don't know it's a good question uh anyway but no, yeah, every, it, I, no it'd be, yeah it'd be an nft guy nft guy yeah but and also i love martin balsam because he's a character where like he really plays a good jury foreman because you never really get his opinion on th- like he'll vote guilty or whatever and innocent but like you never really get his opinion on things he's very mm-hmm. much like a he he has a facade that he's holding it like he's kind of has and it, it breaks occasionally like mm-hmm. it breaks the one time when when 10 basically like criticize him for what he's doing and he's like oh if you want to do it like do it, take like take mm-hmm. it i don't have to do it and then eight starts speaking and he's like brother i don't care what you do he whispers it to himself Mm -hmm. but it leads up to that perfect moment when it's kind of the critical moment when basically it's the majority is now is now in favor or the majority is now in favor of acquittal Mm -hmm. uh or or of innocence when it's that kind of awkward like hand that he does up and he's just kind of like almost laughs Mm -hmm. like he can't believe he's actually switching his vote in a way yeah but Balsam's just so it's so fantastic in that moment. It's so great. Mm-hmm. He's so great in that moment. Yeah, you can um, you can tell he's someone who Yeah, like you said, we don't we don't get a lot from him. No. As far as emotion, but you can tell that he's someone who takes responsibility very seriously. Because yes. in, in a time when like even at the beginning when like no one is taking it seriously, they're all like, Oh, let's just vote guilty and get out of here. He's like, We yeah. gotta do this. Yeah, we gotta do this by the book. You know, we're gonna sit in order. We're going to, you know, even in the beginning when no one's listening to him, he, he's trying to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. And and so that, you know, you still get that that characterization, even even though he's the one who doesn't have like, you know, he's got his he's, he's got his football monologue. Yeah. But he, he's yeah. really the only one that doesn't have a big like this is what I'm about speech. But you still get yeah. what he's about. Yeah, exactly. Because because of his actions. Um, all right, let's let's dive into some of the visuals real quick before we move on to some other stuff. But or and look the final things. But the visuals in here, Hal Lamette and cinematographer Boris Kopp and like shoot this movie mm-hmm. is just phenomenal. And not just like the lens choices and the big thing, like, oh how like Lamette changes like kind of every thirty minutes or whatever. The the beginning, middle, and end, he changes the eye level of where the lens is at. So you're looking down then looking eye level then looking up and every everything gets closer and the close-ups get bigger and everything mm. but it's like he constructs this movie perfectly and i was sitting there thinking i was thinking back to to guillermo del toro when we talked about him back in march where he talked about the difference between uh eye candy and eye protein <laughs> where eye protein it's like you're 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 getting something in the shot it's it's not just flashy for flashy sake mm-hmm. you're getting something about the story and when i was watching this i was just like floored by the shot composition and the blocking mm-hmm. and everything that he does if it's just like if it's the way the camera might look down the table and he's framed all the actors where they're all at this like kind of diagonal line it's just like 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 never ending line of people, people basically like, or if it's just the structure of like when they're on the group during the knife scene, when, Mm -hmm. when Lee J Cobb's going to stab Fonda and everyone's just like perfectly staged in the frame. It's just, it's, it's jaw dropping, honestly, of how he does it. 
and and the way he constructs silences in the movie when you have something happen and then it's like after say like because i think juror number three goes on a rant at one point and everyone's kind of quiet and i feel like everyone's realizing like who this guy is and they're like oh my god are we on this guy's side right now Mm -hmm. (laughs) and like everything kind of starts to turn yeah no i I think you know you mentioned the the knife scene i think that's 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 the one that always kind of sticks in my mind is the way you've got the 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 shot of the one knife and and fonda's like behind it Mm -hmm. and he and he stands and then just like slams the other one down and the the camera doesn't move up with him it stays no yeah it stays on the knife um he does that yeah but yeah, I, I think there there's it it's there there's a couple of, of movements that are that are really solid, but for the most part mm-hmm. it's 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 the camera's not trying to because no. the thing is if the camera were to move, we talked about this um a few months ago with our single um with our single uh, location stuff, kind of like like mother, if the camera were to move, it it, it creates kind of this this flow and this this mm-hmm. freedom almost, you know? And you don't want that in this movie. Yeah. You want it to. No. You want to feel stuck. You want to feel stagnant. You want to feel hot and sticky. So yeah. it's it's a lot more about about the angles and the composition within each shot. But um, but yeah, like you know, masterfully done. And yeah. and like you're saying, the the angles get more dramatic as as the film goes on. And it and yeah. it's a it's a great almost textbook film to watch about how to without without moving the camera. You know, without. Yeah without steady cam without any anything like that even even those crazy dolly shots we were talking about earlier in kubrick's career yeah like in the killing um you can just with 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 your framing with your angles with with the way you're having people move into the frame or move out of the frame yeah you can continue to raise the tension higher and higher and higher yeah and and without fully drawing attention to itself is the Mm. thing it's like it's building upon each other is is the key thing and it's it comes to a head again. I love the the kind of final battle, or final argument between Lee J. Cobb and Fonda, and 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 Cobb just goes on the big rant and just breaks down, mm-hmm. like. And it's the it's the the tearful, not guilty mm-hmm. thing. And it's after he's torn the picture. Like it's just like everything about the movie is just it's just pitch perfect. I feel well, and the one two are kind of you know really the first explosion in in the 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 film the real the first like real conflict is is when cop goes at him with a i'm gonna i'm gonna kill him i'm, I'm gonna kill, kill you him. Yeah, yeah yeah he's like you don't mean you're really gonna kill me do you mm-hmm. um and a lot of those lines too are in ross's teleplay like that's that's i've seen the version of that where he says that and i also love how ross in the script uses like murder and like common sentences or whatever it's like they'll be like oh god the heat's murder today or whatever or like uh it's it's getting murderous out there like, they'll, they'll use things like that and just like weird phrases but like, i don't think mean to but it's just like funny to see how murder is kind of constantly like put throughout the movie somehow mm-hmm. if it's in the language of it anything else you want to say about favorite scenes before moving on um i don't think so i just think you know overall as, as we're talking courtroom dramas versus kind of legal thrillers versus kind of you know a, a courtroom drama doesn't have to have a mystery i think a no. lot of the ones that that we have here uh this month do but you, you know something like um chicago seven which was a which was a very good very yeah. good movie there, there's no mystery there they were there 
yeah you know the way sorkin kind of unrolls it does does lead you to to realize that you you haven't been giving all the information but it's it's still not played off like a mystery in the way you know witness for the prosecution does but (laughs) this this one is is very well done in the way in the structure of it Mm -hmm. you have you know piece of evidence they break down what they've been told and then fonda or someone else introduces this kind of what if and then they follow that thread far enough to convince someone else yeah and then we're done with that evidence and then we get a little bit more interpersonal stuff and then we're gonna another exhibit and we're gonna do the same thing yeah and and it's and it's excellently done from a structure standpoint but then you know you then you get so so it 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 is kind of you're, you're almost expecting it when when we get to you know it's it's just three and four and fonda kind of looks at four and is like oh you you wear glasses and you're like oh here we go we're 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 gonna break down the last the last exhibit mm-hmm. and um and that's and that's you know and he has this kind of light bulb moment where he's, he's like, like oh my oh, god oh yeah. yeah i noticed it too mm-hmm. and i remember like that like i love is the knife when klugman shows that when juror number uh five shows them how to hold a switchblade oh yeah it's like mm-hmm. all of a sudden it's like oh wait my my like my bad up my, my criminal or whatever upbringing is important here yeah and it's like Cause, i can cause, show i mean you can even see the way the cob does it you know he's like i'm i'm about the same height on you yeah this this kind of makes sense i would stab you right here and everybody's like yeah that makes sense and then and then five is like ah no that's that's not how it would have gone yeah like if he if he's good at this knife he's gonna open like a switchblade and like stab it's like you lose too much it's it's like you're not gonna see that in west side story of of uh Enos care uh, Bernardo mm-hmm. stabbing like that way or whatever, but yeah, it's like it's every, every kind of character has an effect on the movie to some extent. Maybe except Jennifer Twelve, he's kind of the only one. Just kind of like it feels like he's not pushing either one way or the other, mm-hmm. and he's also the one. He's the only one that actually switches his vote twice. Yep. He goes from guilty to not guilty to back to guilty, and then switches back to not guilty. He goes back and forth. I think he's kind of like. He's from that that advertising marketing background. Thinks he's kind of like cool and has a lot of money, but he really is indecisive, which mm-hmm. kind of showcases how his job is like too. Yeah, um, he's indecisive in his life. Oh, I hate these things. Did you ever see a knife fight? Yeah. You? No. Anybody here ever see a knife fight? Oh, I have. You know, on my back stoop, a lot across the street, backyard. Switchblades came with the neighborhood where I lived. Funny, I never thought of it before. I guess you try to forget those things. How do you use a switchblade? Well, he never use it like this. See, you lose too much time switching hands. Here's how. Underhanded. Anyone who's ever used a switch knife wouldn't handle it any other way. Are you sure? I'm sure. That's why they're made to open like that. You'd say the boy was pretty handy with a knife. Mm-hmm. You think he could have made the kind of wound that killed his father? No. No, the experience he'd had all his life handling these things. I feel he'd have gone for him underhanded. All right, so we can move on to onset life. So before filming would begin, seeing Lamette would put the cast through a rigorous two-week rehearsal schedule. And we always talk about how it's rare for rehearsals in our modern era with film, but famously, Lumet would not do a movie unless he was given at least two weeks' worth of rehearsal time. Uh, for this for this movie, it was beneficial for the actors to rehearse since the movie is essentially one big scene, as we talked about. The actors rehearsed it so much that they basically could do it as a play, never stopping. 
and he apparently put them in the and they did it multiple times and like one day it, it came off i think i think happened like basically lamette could put them in the room for hours and just have them go and go and go until the end of the day and while rehearsing this the movie lamette began to come up with the film's visual styles pulling from his television days of having cameras with lint with three lenses each so basically it was interesting the cameras he used on television he said i would have three cameras each camera would have three different lenses and so i had to be able to know by looking at the camera just by the tv screen on a very quick or a very short amount of time as we're live mm-hmm. to determine what lens was on it so he wanted to use lenses the way to tell the story and luckily he had a phenomenal dp with boris kaufman and kaufman had just recently won an oscar for his work on kazan's on the waterfront which is actually Coffin's first American film because he was coming over from France and Russia. Mm. Uh, and then he would see a second Oscar nomination a year later for Kazan's Baby Doll. So he's coming into this movie with two Oscar nominations and one win to shoot this. And because of the shooting demands and the low budget, uh, the lighting would be the way they did with the lighting was they basically set up the lighting for a shot. If anything else took place in that certain angle or whatever, they would then shoot the next shot because they didn't have enough time or money to, to reset up lights over and over again. So that means different sides of the same conversation would sometimes be shot days or even weeks apart to save money. Uh, at one point during filming, Fonda worried about the backdrops outside, thinking they looked incredibly fake. He had told Lamette that he had just worked with Hitchcock on The Wrong Man and that those backdrops were way more believable than the New York backdrops for 12 Angry Men. And Lamette assured him that Boris Kaufman would make make them look great on film. And as producers, Ross and Fonda had a lot riding on this movie because they chose to defer their salaries in order to get the movie made. So because of that, the budget was only $339,000 which is a little over $3 million for today. And after 21 days of filming, the movie would wrap, which for this movie and for this period is so short and Mm -hmm. so cheap. And so that leads us to the aftermath of the production. So once everything wrapped, the film began editing and Henry Fonda would have to put on another hat. And that was the producer hat, which is something he was, not really keen on doing or really that much experienced in uh lamette talked about how during production fonda would not watch their dailies and dailies being when filmmakers watch the footage of the day's work for those who don't know and lamette said on the first day of dailies fonda sat down and after seeing the first shot he like patted lamette on the back and said it's brilliant and then walked out and never came back to dailies so lamette basically kind of had free reign to edit this movie and Lamette said that Fonda would never watch himself on screen for the most part. It would take him at least a year or so to actually watch a movie that he starred in because he hated watching himself in films. So the film would open around Easter weekend in 1957 with one of its premieres being at the Capitol Theater in New York City. And Lamette said it was this massive venue sitting over 4,000 people. And within two weeks, the film was out, and it never gained an audience elsewhere. And Lumet and Fonda would blame United Artists for their release strategy, saying the movie should have opened in smaller theaters so it could gain word of mouth. It's very similar to The Killing, which was also United Artists, and might have been the year before this movie. So I think they were notorious for releasing movies 
and the wrong and, and the wrong venues like releasing mm-hmm. them on bigger venues and they should be smaller venues because like at this point in 57 those big venues are like big blockbusters yeah they're they're big like cinemascope technicolor like extravagant movies mm-hmm. and this is not a widescreen film it's black and white it's a drama and everyone kind of thought that the reason why it didn't do so well at the box office was because of all those things. It wasn't a blockbuster, but United Artists released it as a blockbuster, mm-hmm. and it apparently just failed miserably. Um, it would eventually gross $2 million from its $339,000 budget, and Ross and Fonda would never receive money for their deferred salaries because it did not make enough money to, wow. get their, to get their money back. But the film had fantastic reviews, many commenting on Lumet's masterful direction and the performances in the cast. And the film would land three Oscar nominations for Best Picture, Best Director, and Best Adapted Screenplay, but it would lose out to all lose lose all three to David Lean's A Bridge in the River Kwai. Also nominated the same year is a movie we're covering as well this month, and that is Billy Wilder's Witness for the Prosecution, which also was nominated for Best Picture. So two big courtroom dramas in the same year. And after the nominations came out for the Oscars, it seems United Artists chose not to re-release the film in order to get a box office bump, which is usual, which is very usual for for any kind of award-nominated movies. And Fonda would also criticize them for not doing this, believing they are missing a chance on a possible new audience who's now hearing about this movie from critics and award stuff, but now they have no way to actually see the film. Mm-hmm. And so almost instantly after the film's release, Fonda vowed to never produce any other movies, feeling it could hurt his acting career if he continued to do it because of the failure of this movie, because of the box office failure of this movie. And so he never produced another movie. This was the only movie that he ever produced through his production company. And it's amazing. Um, But weirdly enough, the movie fared better internationally. It actually made more money overseas. Really? Yeah. And I think a big reason why is because the play was starting to have a big following overseas. And oh, okay. many people pointed to the fact that the financial success of 12 Angry Men did not come from the movie. It came from the play adaptations because it started to be played across the country and started to be playing like across, around the world. So it was in like like Holland or or Iceland. It was like apparently this massive hit in Paris at the time of the film's release but you almost wonder if people went to see the play because they couldn't go see the movie because mm. it wasn't being released in a lot of places. Yeah. Yeah. That's, 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 that's strange. Yeah. You don't, you, you usually have one following the other in like a very long amount of time, you know, um, you don't have the, the, the spread of it kind of happening concurrently. Yeah. It's really weird. Mm-hmm. It's really weird. Um, but the legacy of 12 angry men has continued to grow as years have gone on with new audiences finding it kind of every few years. So in 2007, it was named the 87th greatest American movie of all time, according to the AFI, but it currently sits at number five on IMDb's top 250 movies of all time. Really? According to audience votes. And it's actually number eight on letterbox votes. Really? So according to kind of audiences, around the world this movie is i think really gaining steam weirdly enough 60 years or more later is odd like it's still finding because i've seen a couple times on like tiktok where like certain people do like 
the AFI or IMDb, like, or AFI, like top 100 of like, I'm going to watch all of AFI's top 100. And almost all the time they're like, 12 Angry Men should be way higher. And so I just wonder, it's just, it's just a movie that I think captures not just one specific period, but it is kind of timeless in what it tries to accomplish. Um, it also continues to be shown at law schools, but also also shown with it's also shown for businesses to showcase team dynamics within a group and how to work through problems. It's a lot of things. So, mm-hmm. and and even to this day, it's actually argued. Some legal experts argue that the jurors came up with the wrong verdict. So it's still like a hot topic for <laughs> people. Um, and it's not only impacted American audiences, but it's also been remade in several countries, including Russia, China, Germany, Spain, and India. These all have different film versions of 12 Angry Men. And the the parodies of the film are also pretty endless, too. And so it feels like, I mean, the film's come a long way since failing to capture an audience in New York City of, of a theater of 4,000 people. And now it's become, with from audiences, considered one of the greatest movies of all time. So that leads me to say, Thomas, what worked about this movie? Cast. Cast. You you know me. I'm someone who <laughs> loves loves a character actor. I love, oh yeah. I love letting a character actor cook. Um, <laughs> and and this movie is a, a spotlight for character actors. Yeah. That I mean that is you know like we were talking about earlier about the whole concept of the and, and you know this goes along with saying the script works, but the, this whole concept of like this is this we're not giving you as much about this character you've got two or three things to go off of but but you have to make them well-rounded with those two or three things that's that's what character actors do that's why they're character actors the the term character actor is is in no way a a negative term it is it is you know no it is about some, the, these these people who who really make their their bread and butter with with taking these these smaller characters and fleshing them out themselves um and and you know finding the quirks finding the distinctive things to to give to that character and that and that's why you know everyone always says brad pitt is a is a character actor in a leading man's body because his his performances tend to kind of take on that kind of stuff but this this movie is is made for character actors um Mm-hmm. You know, it, in in so much to the point where I sometimes feel like Henry Fonda feels a little out of place in this movie. Interesting, because everyone else is performing as a character actor, and he's kind of giving his like leading man Henry Fonda yes yeah. to it. But um, that that's not that's not that's that's just kind of me <laughs> super dissecting this movie. I, 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 in no way would I say Henry Fonda's performance it's bad. doesn't it's work. Bad. <laughs> um, but yes, I I do think just the the script and and the casting and the cast that they put together building out this just in kind of insane concept of like we're going to yeah. take 12 characters and we're going to find out what makes all of them tick in yeah. in an hour and 45 minutes. Like that's that's insane. It's insane. And, and it's it insane. works. Yeah. And, L- and like I said Lamette really it's a perfect marriage of writing and directing and acting of how everything just seems to click and mm-hmm. Lamette's direction is just from, from, from basically day one is masterful. And like, it's just, everything is so well constructed and the, you can tell the director has a perspective. He has a perspective on kind of everyone in the room. Yeah. 
as as this Ross is writing. It's like everyone everyone knows who these characters are from top to bottom. And I'll ask this question because I don't know if it's a question or a statement because I was saying I do think it's it's kind of one of the greatest American debut, one of the greatest directorial debuts ever, no matter the country, but specifically America. And I wonder, I say it's between like 12 Angry Men and Citizen Kane, maybe your top two kind of historically of like two greatest. And I wonder if this one has more staying power because I think it's a little bit more accessible for most yeah. people than, than Citizen Kane. Yeah, I, I, I think so. And, you know, it, it's an extra, what, 20 years of, of storytelling. Yeah. Uh, uh, honing. Um, I mean, it, it is a tight it's a tight story. Scr- it's a tight story. Yeah. Um, I, I, I do think, um, you know, there's the, the, the differences. And, and I think this also goes along with, you know, like we said, 20 years of, of filmmaking mm-hmm. in the, between between Citizen Kane and 12 Angry Men. A lot of directors figured out like Stanley Kubrick as well, figured out, you know, yeah. your first movie needs to be small. Citizen Kane. Was, yeah was Big. was orson welles saying i'm gonna do everything that's in my head i'm gonna make it all happen and and that yeah. that is why it is so well remembered it was because he just rolled up to the scene and changed so many things about filmmaking in one yeah. in one fell swoop didn't know um, the rules didn't know the yeah. rules with with this one you know the met is is confining himself to the same constraints that a lot of first time directors get, which is, Mm -hmm. you know, you got to keep it small. You got to keep it, keep the budget tight. He's just determined to excel within those constraints. Yes, exactly. So, you know, I I do think it's two different kind of approaches to filmmaking. Yeah. Um, But he said, he said it was arrogance that like one reason why he took it. It was, it was ignorance and ignorance, not as much ignorance, but a lot more arrogance that like, I wanted to prove that I could, I could tackle this. I think it's like Wells didn't know the rules of filmmaking and that's why it was so good. But I think with Lamette, it's because he knows the rules and because he directed so much TV, Mm -hmm. he knew how to be efficient and knew how to tackle certain things. And, and shoot on a tight budget and shoot on a tight schedule, but still make it impactful and cinematic story is the key. Is it like you could tell the same story and it could be stagey as hell and boring as hell and not have the same emotional impact this movie does, but it's because of Lamette's direction. I feel like I'm tipping our hand for my pick <laughs> for MVP, but there it is. Um, it would be it would be real hard to 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 pick anyone out of the cast. Yeah. Um, so did anything not work about this movie, Thomas? It's you know it's 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 hard. This one's a hard one to to look back in hindsight and say. Yeah. Y- you know if if we're if we're talking, you know, is this the perfect? You know, is is every character given their perfect payoff? I I don't I don't think so. Um. You know, not not that they have to, not that you have to perfectly pay off twelve characters in a in a script. Yeah. But um but like you were saying, like I'm I'm not sure if they intended on seven to feel on seven's storyline to feel wrapped up because it yeah. it doesn't. And and twelve doesn't necessarily we get a we get a lot of twelve in this movie, and I'm still not exactly sure where twelve lies With at everything. the end of it. Yeah. But that also might be, you know, just a comment on how kind of soulless the Madison Avenue guys were at that time anyway. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, that would be something that we dig into a lot deeper with Mad Men. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, 
Yeah, it's tough. It's it's tough to really say like this doesn't work in this yeah. movie. How you feel? How you feel the backdrops outside? Because Fonda wasn't a fan. It's, it's fine. <laughs> I'm not watching that. I know. Um, yeah, I like the way that again. I like the way that they use the space where it's the like it gets dark, it starts raining. They have to like it's it's the faint. All these different things, the heat. It's all these different things that are like a key factor in their emotions. Um, all right, film facts. Don't have a lot. There's not weirdly there's not a lot of things out there about this movie which is somewhat surprising and i wonder if we'll ever get that or if there's it's kind of a combination of all these different videos made by people online but <laughs> two film facts one there are apparently 365 shots in the movie and that was it okay 365 is not a lot for like a 95 minute you movie could, honestly. you could look at one shot every day of the year for from you this could. movie yeah Start today, guys. Uh, my last film fact deals with the play. There's at least, I think there's at least four different versions of this play in America. So there's Twelve Angry Men. There's two different versions of actually Twelve Angry Men. There's two different ver- There's like a a version that's more like the movie and a version that's more stripped down. That's more for like like your local theater doing mm-hmm. or whatever. There's Twelve Angry Men. There's Twelve Angry Women. Mm-hmm. And there's 12 Angry Jurors, which is a basically a mixed cast of women, men and women. Mm-hmm. Um, those are my film facts for, th- for this movie. Yeah. Um, uh, but awards, let's move on to that. Uh, I don't know if we can give anyone this, but we'll we'll try. The Beatrice Strait Award, actor, actress, the limit scenes that kills it. Well, Man, that bailiff. That you bailiff. Know, he just... Yeah, he's pretty good. Or yeah. is it is the judge at the beginning who's reading? Or the kid. Reading? The kid. The kid's pretty good. He has no lines, but has a memorable face. Great acting with his eyes. Mm-hmm. Like, what's this kid's name? Does it? Say, oh, John Savoka. Yep, he's only in this movie. <laughs> you know, so John Savoka. It's it's almost sixty years later. I mean, it, it, Rudy Bond is actually though who plays the judge. Uh, he was a big actor. He's in Street Crime Desire and on the waterfront. So he was a big kind of uh, Kazan guy for a little bit and did did several movies. He's in The Godfather. Really? Wow. Yeah, he's Don Carmine. Don, uh, uh, the a crime boss of the rival crime family. Cuneo uh, and Godfather. Is he one of the ones that gets that gets killed in the I be- I believe so, baptism yes. scene? Oh, okay. I think so. Taking Pelham 1, 2, 3, the original one. Wow. Run Silent, Run Deep. He was in a lot of stuff. Wow. So is it Ru- is it Rudy Bond or is it John Savoka? Rudy Bond, the judge, with his voice. Give him to the kid. John Savoka. Okay, John Savoka for his only acting performance ever <laughs> on film. Beatrice Strait Award. Congratulations. Uh, there'll be no clip to go with that because he has no lines. Uh, it's just him looking. All right. Now, here's the big one. The Annie Potts X Factor Award. Supporting actor, actress that is the most memorable. I think everyone qualifies except Henry Fond <laughs> in this movie. Um, uh, I mean, Lee J. Cobb is, you know, hard time arguing with that one. I think it's Lee J. Cobb. I think you could make some fun arguments for Jack Warden. Mm-hmm. I could make some fun argue. I mean, I, I, I also do. I like the character actors in this completely. So, like, I could argue Jack Klugman. I could, ar- I could try to argue Martin Balsam. I could try to argue. Um, John Fielder, also John Fielder, Piglet. For those who don't know, the guy who plays Jerry Number Two, he is he is the voice of Piglet in Winnie the Pooh, or was. 
Um, yeah, but I think it's Cobb. I think Cobb has the most meat on the bone in this movie as a, as as a as a supporting player. Mm. Um, he kind of is the he's the antagonist throughout the whole thing. Um, I do love that moment when he's broken down at the table and then Fonda like grabs his jacket and helps him up. And it's also that wonderful that wonderful shot that wide shot at the end when everyone's leaving the courthouse mm-hmm. and it's Cobb that's the last one slowly walking down the stairs. I feel like out of everyone in the room, his life has changed the most by the end of this movie. <laughs> you think he's going to call his son? I think he's going to try to. I think he's definitely thinking about it. He's going to talk to his wife about it. I think he's definitely going to try and make amends with his son. I do think that. It's on his mind, at least. I don't know if he does it. I think it's on his mind. Um, I think he's seen some, or I think he's, I think it's like that. This was his therapy. This was Cobb's therapy. Jury number three definitely would not go to therapy ever by his <laughs> views on things, but this was his therapy, I think. Assume. <laughs> Brother, I've seen all kinds of dishonesty in my day, but this little display takes the cake. You all come in here with your hearts bleeding all over the floor about slum kids and injustice. You listen to some fairy tales, suddenly you start getting through to some of these old ladies. Well, you're not getting through to me. I've had enough. What's the matter with you guys? You all know he's guilty. He's got to burn. You're letting him slip through our fingers. Slip through our fingers? Are you his executioner? I'm one of them. Perhaps you'd like to pull the switch. For this kid, you bet I would. I feel sorry for you. What it must feel like to want to pull the switch. Ever since you walked into this room, you've been acting like a self-appointed public avenger. You want to see this boy die because you personally want it, not because of the facts. You're a sadist. You don't really mean you'll kill me, do you? All right, the Gene Hackman MVP award, the person who carries the movie, director, actor, etc., think i think we we already gave that one away it's lamette it's, it's lamette give me give me your reason why it's lamette i just want to hear yours because i've said i said a lot of mine a, a film like this is a testament to a director you know i'm not we've 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 gone back and forth on this show about about all tour theory and and is the director all powerful and when is the director all powerful and is all tour theory stealing from from other people um but but this a movie like this boils it down to this is what a director does. They work with all of these actors, all twelve of them, to to find their characters, find their performance, and they figure out how the camera is going to enhance that performance. And and that that is all this movie is. That this this you know, there's nothing else. There's no debating like you do today whether or not the director actually did the 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 action sequences um you know it, it, there's no there's no question about who who directed the cgi portions um and and you know there's even to a certain point there's there's nothing there's nothing flashy taken away from you know mm-hmm. solid production design i tr- i believe yeah. that that is a, a jury room yeah but, but i mean it is it is just 12 character actors working with Sidney Lumet in this movie. Yep. And, and, and so it, it, this is, if, if there's any movie to go like, this is what a director does. It's, it, it, it's, it's this one. Yeah, I agree. I, I think if I ever, if I ever taught class in film, I don't know what year it would like, what, what, what would be covering, but I would cover 
this movie. Mm-hmm. Like just as from a role as a director of the pace of it, how he constructs a scene and how he constructs like the scenes within the scene is kind of the thing. Cause that's, it's like, because it's one big scene, he's having to find sections to kind of, it's in the writing too, of course, but like he's having to make everything feel different. So again, the, the play was divided into three acts. The movie's divided into three acts. That's how he, sw- why he switches the, the camera position and, and, and throughout the movie for these specific sections. And you can feel the atmosphere change when you go into each section based on how he shoots the movie. Mm-hmm. And he said he give everyone gets a moment and everyone it's just again every it's everything feels so deliberate and there's a perspective behind it is the key. And I think if you're a director everything needs to have every choice needs to have a purpose. Yeah. And it feels like every choice here was thought out was not rushed is the other thing. And if it was rushed, it's because he's so trained that he can make those decisions on the fly, but everything feels so, so specific and deliberate throughout the movie. Mm-hmm. So yes, yeah, Cindy Lamette, I would love to do a full month on you. I don't know if it'll ever happen, but Cindy Lamette, Gene Hackman, MVP award winner. That's a lot of movies to watch. It's a lot of movies. I'm aware. That's why I've never, we've never done it. I've tempt, I've, I've tempted fate a few times of thinking about it, uh, but it's a lot of movies. But at least you got a little bit about Saint Lomet today is the key thing. Let's take two pieces of testimony and try to put them together. First, the old man in the apartment downstairs. He says he heard the boy say, "I'm going to kill you," and a split second later, heard a body hit the floor. One second later, right? That's right. Second. The woman across the street swore positively she looked out of the window and saw the killing through the last two cars of a passing elevated train, right? The last two cars. Well, what are you giving us here? Just Now, just a minute. We've agreed that it takes 10 seconds for a train to pass a given point. Since the woman saw the killing through the last two cars, we can assume that the body hit the floor just as the train went by. Therefore, the train had been roaring by the old man's window a full 10 seconds before the body hit the floor. The old man, according to his own testimony, I'm going to kill you, body hitting the floor a split second later, would have had to hear the boy make this statement with the yell roaring past his nose. It's not possible he could have heard it. Final questions, Thomas. If this film was remade today, who would you cast? Okay. I have, okay. Uh, let, me, let me pull up my notes app. Okay. Do your notes app. Yeah, because I know you, you got some big ones. I have two stipulations going yes. into this. Okay. One, no names. Even Fonda? For, even Fonda, no name? Even Fonda, no names. Oh, I, I okay. think if if you were to come into this knowing nothing about this movie, I think having eight as a name is a cheat. It's a little bit of a it, cheat. It, t- it tips your hand of who's going to be the person. Oh, that's that's Tom Hanks. I'm going to listen to him, you know? Yes, yeah, yes, that's, yes, that's a cheat. yes. Also, me, the 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 man of the character actors. I, don't, I just want to. I'm just going to fill it with character no, actors. Yeah, just go put Tom Hanks in like jury number three. If you want to be different, go put him as jury number three. No, no names. Okay. Um, and and for anyone, no no names means no no like a listers. That's just what you call. Yeah, there's a difference between a name and a face. That's yeah. why there's the, he's a face. They're they're a face, but they're not a name. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then my other thing was I, I thought about I've, I've never seen 12 Angry Women, but I'm, I'm aware of it and, and 12 yes. Angry Jurors. 
And I thought about that and, and I, I wanted to try to approach it just, just the men because I am making some changes with kind of with, with race and background, but Mm -hmm. all of that kind of fits within the script that I am aware of. And, and I, I think, I think you're, I'm sure that those other adaptations probably change the script to address some issues with sexism and gender bias. And, and I was trying to do it without changing the script. So yeah, that's, we will have 12 angry men in this one. Okay. Um, okay. For, and, and when I go through them, I'm just going to do a little recap of what their kind of defining traits are. So everybody can, can picture my, do you, do you have your, no, I did not. Cause I, I just okay. want to hear yours honestly okay. with this one. All right. Um, one, our foreman. Yes. Bob Odenkirk. Okay. That worked. He's just I, a, he's I just feel a like dude. He's kinda, I feel like he's kind of a name, but yes. He, Bob Odenkirk is not a name. <laughs> even, even with, what is that one? Nobody, even nobody, they, like they put his face on the poster, but they didn't put like big letters like Bob Odenkirk, nobody. He, he, he's, he's, he's teetering. He, he's, 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 he's a little, he's, he's underneath it, I think. Well, there you go. Well, he's the one in charge. So maybe people okay. will think that he's, yeah. he's doing more than he is. Um, number two, the kind of meek and mild banker. I did um, Harvey Gillen from uh, What We Do in the Shadows and, and the upcoming Blue Beatles film. Okay. Okay. Very, very like good actor. Big fan of his. Mm-hmm. Very good in, in What We Do in the Shadows for playing a very meek and mild character character as well number three juror number three it's uh-huh. a big one i feel like i know who it might be is it jason clark no but that's that is a good one thank you thank you love jason clark big jason clark fan if it, it, I, I always think if i need somebody to be a fiery asshole it's gonna be jason clark i think he's teetering on on, on that but yes i think he i think he's jason clark he, is not a name <laughs> He's becoming more of a character actor of late. I will say. Yes. I think they try to make him a name. I think they try to make him a name at one point in his career. But I think he's with, with like say like uh, Winning Time. I think he's a character actor now. Yeah, yeah. Big fan of him as a character actor. Yeah. Uh, number four, also not a name, but number four is the 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 stockbroker, very like yes. studious. Um, I I remember movies that I've seen in theaters. Guy, yeah. uh, Jeremy Strong got like oh that's, yeah that's the only person i could picture for for yeah. modern times that makes sense that makes sense uh number five so number five is the one who kind of came up in the projects and is kind of quiet about it but obviously you know has a has kind of a fire inside of him about his past and being discriminated against because of his past uh andre holland i love andre holland Andre just, Holland from Moon, from Moonlight and the Nick, yeah, uh, High Flying Bird. Yeah, I just want more Andre Holland and stuff. And I think he'd yeah. be great in this. And I and I think five is five is one of my character my favorite characters in it. He's um, great. Yeah, I think he's a he's a character that's got a lot of heart and is feels like really really fleshed out. Um, yeah. Shout out Andre Holland, Bama Boy from Bessemer. <laughs> yeah. Uh, number six uh, is our construction worker who. Doesn't yeah, have a lot going for him, but he'll stand up for what's right. Um, can use his use his strength to to help others. Mm-hmm. Uh, I went with uh, Clifton Collins Jr. from uh, from in Runaway Westboro. Jury. In Runaway Jury. Oh, is he in Runaway Jury? No, I'm sorry, no, no, not him, not him, not him. Sorry. I'm sorry, I think someone else. I thought, no. yeah, Clifton Collins Jr. Yes, that makes sense. He is he is good. 
from from Westworld and very very briefly uh Nightmare Alley. Yes, very briefly Nightmare Alley. He's in what, what else he been in? He was in um was he he was in he was in Pacific Rim, right? For for Del yes. Toro. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, yeah. he's like the engineer. He's one of the engineers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, he's great. Which is funny you should mention that because for number 7 I have Charlie Day. <laughs> interesting for charlie day it's like he is because jack horn's really funny in that he's just this guy he's just always on you know that's that's the thing his character is like you're just like at a certain point you're just like dude shut up like we're all <laughs> we're all tired here like you don't have to be always doing a bit or whatever and i want to see the yankees <laughs> for for a minute i thought about sandler but then i was like that's that's a name no that's names a, that, that, yes that has a name <laughs> I would, have, I would have been I would have been very upset if you were like no names and they're like okay number seven Adam Sandler I was like <laughs> how dare you um okay here's the big one number eight number eight no names Glenn Powell <laughs> no uh number eight I was trying to trying to n- nail the age I also think Henry Fonda might be a little bit older than they're trying to play eight I don't know he's Maybe. he says he has three kids he doesn't say how old they are. Mm-hmm. um but he is a he has a working architect he's not retired yeah. um went with hamish link later okay that's your boy you're you're My, doing... we've, we've, we saw him together brandon i know i know we saw you him do... live with tom hanks we did he was great uh, but i think it's funny you're doing like the big short cast reunion here with the with oh, link later and strong yeah him and him and stronger and like and big short together <laughs> um yeah, I was thinking recently, re- more recently of Midnight Mass. If 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 you if yes, any of you watch that, um, you know, or if you're sitcom fans, the new adventures of old Christine, you know, yeah, yeah, and of course, can't forget the newsroom. Yes, one, one Jerry Dantana. Le- <laughs> Remember, you didn't like him for a bit because he was so good as Jerry Dantana. Yeah. Like yeah. a- <laughs> he's great. Um, all right, number nine, the the older old gentleman. Man. Who, yeah. who just wants some someone to listen to him um i went with danny glover i like that i like that a lot he'd be he'd be, he'd be perfect for that role yeah he's he's got he's got a he's got a fire in him the the character obviously danny glover has a fire in him he's he's got a he's got a lot of sadness in him but he's also got once yeah. it's fine it's it's like once he finally does start talking yeah his kind of like his sense of right and wrong you know in, in the beginning he was just like like we said before about it they kind of yeah pull the best out of all the timid people here it's like you know once once he does get started talking he's standing up for what's right and yeah, i think danny glover would be very good with that i think ozzy davis played him in this in the, in the 97 remake because there was a 97 mm-hmm. remake I, ozzy davis plays that character jack lemon plays juror number eight um i think gandalf is Hume Cronin is, in that one is he let me see I know uh, Gandolfini is in there, and he plays uh, he plays your number six. Yeah, him. I'm sorry, Hugh, Hugh Crone is number nine. Ozzy Davis is number two. He's the banker. Mm. I, yeah. So it's Courtney B. Vance is the foreman. Ozzy Davis is your number two. George C. Scott your number three. Armin Mueller Stahl is uh, your number four. Dorian Haywood is number five. James Gandolfini six. Tony Danza is number seven. Tony Danza. Uh, Lemon is eight. Hume Crone is nine. Uh, uh, Michael T. Williamson's number ten. Mm. Edward James almost number eleven. 
William Peterson, number 12. Really good cast. Really good cast. I'm sorry I just threw all those names in the middle of your cast. <laughs> um, yeah, don't get, don't get, don't get mixed uh, up, guys. Don't get mixed up, guys. So we're so you said that so number nine, Danny Glover. Yeah. That's where we're at. So number ten. Who is the ignorant the the ignorant <laughs> racist. Yes. Don't 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 try and tell me this one's a name. But I've got Ben Mendelssohn. I mean I wouldn't call him a name. He's, he's close face. though. He's great. He's a face. He's a face and he's I, great. I didn't say I was going with obscure character <laughs> actors for all this. I just said character <laughs> actors. Okay. But I do think he's someone, you know, I, I think a lot of people are probably familiar with him because of his his villain work. But yes. um, he, there's, there's been a couple of roles in which he's kind of played a, a dope as well. And I, I think he's kind of endearing and sometimes kind of tragic when he does play a dope. Yeah. Um, and so I think if anyone could kind of it's that's a it's a tough line. It's a tough mm-hmm. line to tread, like we said, of to play someone who's racist, but but doesn't necessarily do it out of a place of hatred and just out of a place of ignorance. And, and, and I think yeah. he could sell it without, yeah. without tipping too far in either direction. Okay. I like that. Um, and then number 11, I, so number 11 is the, the, the immigrant watchmaker who, who yeah. takes a lot. You can tell it takes a lot of pride in, in kind of being American and, and, and speaking English. He's the one who's correcting everyone's grammar. Yeah. Um, and for that, I have uh, Kihei Kwan from, you know, obviously Goonies, but oh, everything yeah. everywhere all at once as well. He be, he he actually be really great in that role. I I, actually... I was absolutely blown away by him in everything everywhere all at once. You know, he's amazing. It, it doesn't being a good kid actor doesn't always translate to being a no. good uh, adult actor, and 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 to know that that you know that he had been not able to kind of step up and and have roles like that before was and he yeah, yeah. i gotta give him more yeah tangent but he's so great and everything everywhere all at once and like he has that because i was i was worried at first because he was playing i was like oh yeah this is this this is data grown up at, mm-hmm. at the beginning and that switch in the elevator was like oh shit he's fantastic like yeah. he just it's like he has he plays like three different role three different roles in that whole movie oh, yeah. he's, well, he's amazing he's, when they when they do the the long car why yeah stuff he's he's so good as just a straight up romantic lead god he's so good in this movie oh yeah i that yeah i'm 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 honored that i got to see him do a q a uh one of the last movies i saw at the landmark before it closed he did a q a there and it was, it was it was fantastic so sweet just a kind a kind man and talented talented actor so All that's right, number, that's number 11 out. number 12 number 11 number 12 you've got the kind of the dopey ad exec guy it's it's, it's billy magnuson right <laughs> yeah it is billy magnuson yeah yeah I, I, I was watching i was like should i try and squeeze glenn powell glenn powell into this role i'd like him too much i'd like him too much if it was glenn powell in that role he got to get yeah. it to billy magnuson they're nice it's fun i mean he's great he's he's one of the best parts of uh event of the woods mm-hmm. and, game and, night. and game night he's one of those guys i've always said i'm a big fan of the character actors who are too handsome to be funny and when yeah. and then when they are funny you're like ah oh, damn it you can't be funny and handsome and you know hey glenn powell's the same way but billy magnuson like the first time i saw billy magnuson i was like i don't like this guy it's too, too good looking <laughs> too pretty of a face yeah and then he's funny he's funny and 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 he can he can pull off yeah i've seen him play you know something kind of like this before but but yeah i think he'd be a very good number 12 so that's there we go that's my i like that good that's a good cast that's a good cast i like it 
Um, hopefully, with with all the great character actors in it, it'll bring enough financing. <laughs> To, no to names get, but faces. You can, no you names can, but faces. You can do one of those those good ugly poster. Uh, yeah, yeah, one, good one poster. of those ugly posters they're doing right yeah. now with everybody's face on. Every it. face. It's like a circle, and like right in the middle is Hamish Linklater's face, yep. and like a, and like a gavel over them or something. Yeah, that's the terrible idea. Don't think I actually that's a good idea. What I'm pitching, it's not a good idea. <laughs> I like the cast. Um, now I got a good poster. You found I get you found on that poster. Um, does this film fit with any other genres, Thomas? We've almost talked about it several times. Um, I mean, it's definitely we we've talked about the chamber piece genre, yep. so it, it you know it fits in it fits in with that for sure. This idea of of being stuck with stuck with people, especially we we've even talked about you know it being hot in a chamber yeah. piece <laughs> uh, drama. Um, just being being stuck with people and and temperatures and uh, tempers rising. As, as it goes and it and it brings out the truth very quickly mm-hmm. um and and so and, and also in in the way that we've talked about kind of this whole episode in which lumet had to figure out how to shoot it yeah. are the same the same kind of challenges that we discussed in our in our chamber piece uh, month so go back and listen to those episodes if you haven't yeah that's yeah. and also the 24-hour movie i think it fits into that too mm-hmm. yeah. a little bit different but uh um if you want the if you want the uh the chamber piece episodes those are most recent they're episodes uh episodes 212 to 215 it's crazy we've done over 200 episodes it's it's why i see that oh, okay um yeah 24 hour movies uh like i said chamber piece count kind of one location it's probably it right now uh yeah. Those. yeah i think so is it summer movie because i mean <laughs> no going to a baseball game it's it's hot that's it okay. that's all you got going for i you. can't really say the date or not in the movie but yeah um all right and so how does this film fit within the courtroom drama you know it's 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 an early one it's it's a classic yeah it's not really in a courtroom but uh, not a courtroom but it, it it definitely takes kind of the the, the entire legal system into account and the, yeah. the way that it works and it gives us a glimpse at something that you know we hadn't seen in yeah. in previous yeah. kind of courtroom type stuff you, you you don't often get to see what happens in the jury room it's it's like anytime there is a high profile case i can almost guarantee you someone on some news talk show when talking about the jury mentions 12 angry men i don't know how many times i have seen court like court tv type things use a clip from 12 angry men to describe the jury process mm-hmm. that's insane yeah <laughs> that, that, that people are, are using this movie as a way to describe how how what a, what beyond a reasonable doubt means you or, know it's, it's it's one of those rare pieces of media that that you know they were really one of the first people to think about telling this a story this way and they just did it so perfectly that no one like you no know, can do it you, again. Yeah, you can't be like, oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna write a a jury deliberation story, and everybody's like, oh, twelve angry men. Like, yeah, it's just kind of is. Yeah, that's it's like you've had scenes of like stuff in juries, or like you'll see kind of clips of like, like you'll get to know some of the jurors if you're watching a courtroom drama movie. If it's a time to kill, or if it's like midnight in the garden of good and evil, 
and like even runaway jury to an extent even like that's that there's a lot of stuff happening outside of the jury room and and there's also like a, a ploy like a, a whole other plot going in like this really just says we're going to show you how the jury deliberations work and we're not going to make it boring and it succeeds and you literally get like i said i keep saying you, you get the case in that first 30 minutes you get the case of it's almost like you get your opening arguments Lee J. Cobb saying he did this, he did this, and he did this, and then Fonda's like, "I'm gonna, like, I, what if this happened? What if this happened?" So you're getting the opening arguments, and then the end, you get kind of your closing arguments between like Fonda and Cobb of like when Fonda's like, "It's you, you're all alone, it's just you now," and it it's designed so well to mirror a courtroom, a court, a court case, but it's all just done through these twelve people arguing their points mm-hmm. and it's fantastic it's yeah. fantastic so that's the beginning of our courtroom drama month we've covered one of the granddaddies of them all with 12 angry men the rest of the month we're covering a few good men my cousin Vinny, witness for the prosecution but next week thomas what are we covering uh next week we're covering a uh one one that we talked about in our in our month in our in our day one episode last yeah, our, time, our day right? yes yes yeah. yes it's one i love i haven't watched yes. it since since like high school and i'm excited to rewatch this movie it's dark it's gritty it's it's jimmy stewart it's uh it's anatomy <laughs> of a murder yeah so great yeah it's it's worth checking out i mean we'll talk about it all next week but both these movies are worth checking out but yeah, next week it's a, it's a long movie i will say that that's what i remember about it because that, that was one where like i remember t- Actually, I won't, I'll save that for next week. I will save my th- <laughs> thoughts on Anatomy for Murder for next week. But I think I don't know if it's streaming anywhere. You probably rent it online. Um, but yeah, that's all we have for you for this episode on Twelve Angry Men. We hope you enjoyed it. Hope you can go enjoy the movie if you can go find it. If you have any questions for us, feel free to contact us at cinationpodcast at gmail dot com. Send us your questions, comments, or even kind words. We love those. And also, if you're a new listener or a fan of the show, and for some reason you haven't subscribed to us yet, be sure to subscribe to Cination Podcast to stay up to date on all of our new episodes. You can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever your podcast. And if you haven't already, be sure to write us a review on your preferred podcast platform. You know, it, being able to express your opinion is, a per, is an important part of the judicial system. Mm-hmm. And, and what better place to express your opinion than in the review section of the Cinenation <laughs> podcast page on your choice of podcast platform. That's it. Yeah. That's all you got to do. Um, tell us your thoughts as detailed as possible. Um, and finally, don't forget to like and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. Thomas, as always, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. And thank you all for listening. We hope you listen to more episodes soon. Bye. Bye.